Well, hey everyone, what is up? Welcome or welcome back to my channel. My name is Austin. This is Gospel Simplicity, a channel where we're passionate about the beautiful simplicity and transformative power of the gospel. And I am so glad that you're here today. I know I say that every time, but genuinely, I am so grateful that you would take the time to watch this video. And if you haven't already, if I'd be so bold as to ask, or may I say recommend, uh, if you're enjoying these videos, I'd encourage you to hit the subscribe button to become a part of this community. And if you don't want to miss a video, go ahead and click that notification bell as well to stay in the loop with everything going on here. That would mean a lot to me. And I really appreciate all of you who have already done that. Well, today's video is with Father Laurent Kleenewerk, and we are talking about Orthodox ecclesiology and what that means for Orthodox Catholic relations. Now, that title might sound complex. I don't know if that excites you or not. If you follow my channel, it probably does. But I have to tell you, I had a lot of fun with this conversation. When you get around people that are passionate about what they're talking about and they have a vision that compels them, there's something infectious about that. And you're going to find that with Father Laurent. He believes that the church ought to be one and he prays sincerely and is looking to take steps to see that actually happen. And he's not doing it in a way that he's just trying to say it's all blasé, there's, you know, it's all relative, why don't we just, you know, sing Kumbaya and all get together. No, it, it, it's substantive, but I really, man, I, I really appreciated his approach. And I, I think you will too, even if maybe ecumenism and these things like this are, maybe if that's like a dirty word for you, um, I'd encourage you, give him the time of day. I think you'll really enjoy it. I think he's very charitable while also being faithful to his tradition. I hope you enjoy it. Before we get to it, though, I want to say a real quick thank you to my patrons, subscribers, and merch buyers who make this channel possible, especially to my patrons who give monthly to this channel to help it not only be sustainable, but to grow into exciting and new things. Thank you so much. Seriously, my patrons, I mean, this is how I afford groceries. Like, I'm a college student between my studies and everything else going on like this is my job and so thank you so much to the people that are supporting me i really really appreciate you so if you want to support the channel you can go to patreon.com slash gospel simplicity that link will be in the description down below I also want to say thank you to my sponsor for today, Kindred. Kindred is a ministry that exists to help people reclaim sacred time with God in their daily lives. And they do this by creating beautiful Bibles complete with full page photos and a layout that will cause you to slow down, read more contemplatively, and I think get a lot more out of your Bible reading. They're especially designed for Lectio Divina, which we talked about recently, and I think you'll just really enjoy it. So if you want to check them out, you can go to kindredapostle.com and be sure to use the promo code GOSPEL10 for 10% off your order. Well, with all of that in mind, here's the video. Well, today I am joined by Father Laurent Cleanwork. He is an Orthodox priest serving as a rector of St. Innocent Orthodox Church in Eureka, California, and the Orthodox Church in America Diocese of the West. He is, among other things, a graduate of the St. Sergius Institute in Paris and current, currently teaches theology for the Ukrainian Catholic University and for Euclid University. He is the author of His Broken Body, Understanding and Healing the Schism Between the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox Churches, which we'll be discussing today, and the editor of Eastern Greek Orthodox New Testament. Father Laurent, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, I look forward to this discussion with you. 
Well, I do as well. And like I said, today we're going to be talking about your book, uh, His Broken Body, and talking about Orthodox Catholic relationships. Uh, But first, I just want to ask, what inspired you to write this book? It's a very personal journey because my background is actually French mostly, and therefore mostly Catholic. And my, uh, my wife has a strong Catholic background. So in deciding where to go, I wanted to really uh, dig deep. And basically, this is the, the fruit of, of you know, a couple of years of, of research where I read everything I could find in terms of apologetics on both sides. And then I went to seminary. Actually, I was at St. Ticon's at the time in 2002, 2003, 2004. And I was writing this book. And this book came out as something that I was sensing intuitively, which is that, in fact, both, quote, churches, which we'll discuss what that means or not, but both churches or both um, communions, in fact, with defects, do manifest the the Church of Christ, that they do have with defects sometimes, sometimes very severe, but they, they do manifest the sacraments, the mysteries, that they, they do have saints, and that um, when they, these two um, groups separated very progressively over a long, long time, that these defects entered, you know, East and West, Latins and Greeks, that some of these defects are very severe, I would say, or fatal, uh, not always. And I think that's the sense that people have, right? That we 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 retain an incredible holiness and 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 truth and beauty, and that we also have defects that we can see if we're, you know, long enough Orthodox or Catholic. You know, that there are really saints on both sides, right? And at the same time, that uh, we do have differences. Some of them are are meaningful. I think sometimes they're also overemphasized. And I think a, uh, there's a desire we can have to say, hey, I'm, 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 I'm right, you're wrong, I've got my proof texts. And there's a real desire to say, let's really dig deep into, into the words, the questions, the issues, and see if maybe there's more um, of a convergence that we, that, that we don't sometimes want because it's uncomfortable to have to to, to confront, uh, that we have to do something about it. But um, I think there is a, a convergence, in fact, today between sincere Orthodox and Catholic Christians. And so I remain, uh, by Christian nature, optimistic that uh, the Lord will work something out, even in difficult times. Thank you for that. And I, I really appreciate your outlook on this. I think today we're seeing in our uh, radically interconnected world compared to past times, uh, Mm -hmm. two very uh, polar opposite reactions, but driven by similar forces, I think, of uh, like globalization and localization. Or in the church, we see these aspects of some people are coming together, but at the same time, there's this strong pull towards the poles in which people are increasingly defining themselves by the things that differentiate them. And like you said, we do see a lot of emphasis on these differences, which you know, not to make light of theological differences, but I do appreciate uh, just your hopefulness and your willingness mm-hmm. to look at both sides to assess the issue and see how how can we work together on these difficult and serious topics. And on that note, I do find, just generally speaking, and this is, I know uh, people make the 
the distinction between interdox or internet orthodox and like the the parish life of average orthodox uh, communities, and especially in the West versus mm-hmm. uh, in old orthodox countries. But to work on a, a generalization of my experience as a content creator on YouTube, I find many orthodox pretty opposed to the idea of ecumenism or talking about reunion with Rome. It, I don't find many people interested in it, but I do, and I also furthermore find people that are actively opposed to even conversations of this nature. Why do you think that is? And maybe what would you say to that to draw people into this conversation mm-hmm. to uh, at least give it a fair hearing? Yeah, I think it's easy to, to look at the dark side of things, whether it's, you know, the current issues with with Pope Francis and uh, the scandals that took place a few years ago, uh, liturgical uh, problems in, in the Catholic Church, which are, you know, I think quite real in, in many places. Um, so in that sense, it's, if we're looking for things to, to complain about, things that are negative and, and don't want, uh, that make us not want to really engage, then we're going to find them very quickly. Orthodoxy has also very challenging uh, situations. You know, there's a current schism going on between uh, Constantinople and Moscow, and it's it's really a sign of a dysfunctional ecclesiology of uh, political difficulties. Uh, Constantinople, of course, uh, no longer is a, a you know a functioning church in terms of uh, the 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 amount of people there that would make a, a local uh, church function in Istanbul today. So there's challenges with uh, you know, metropolitans without a real flock. So we have difficulties and it's just easier to, to, to retreat and not be willing to look at our challenges and also Catholic cha- challenges. Uh, orthodoxy tends to be smaller in terms of, uh, you know, size numbers in terms of influence. So it's, it's easy to, um, to feel that uh, there's a mismatch basically in terms of, uh, of the the uh, the way things are, and to to retreat into our our small groups, and also you're right that uh, in a parish, uh, it, it's different than you know online activists basically, right? Um, also, in in Greek Orthodoxy, yeah, generally there's a more uh, like I don't care attitude, like you know I'm comfortable with who I am, I'm not threatened by you. Roman Catholics, uh, we can talk, we can engage. There's less of a sense of, of clash, conflict, um, enmity that sometimes you will find with uh, uh, other Orthodox groups with difficult historical backgrounds, whether it's in Ukraine or you know, in Serbia. So there is a, a local reality and historical aspect to which Orthodox groups will be uh, more or less interested in even dialogue and seeing where that could go. And um, that, in a sense, people that at least mourn the separation, that would be nice, even though you would say, well, there's some real issues over there, and uh, maybe they, uh, the Catholics have more difficulties and errors than we do. And But it would be nice to say, well, we used to be one common union for a thousand years. We've lost the, the, the Sea of Rome, for better or worse, but, right, and... Um, we don't have as orthodox that that um, unchallenged, you know, primate at this point. Right? We have some issues trying to to function apart from a, a promise that is recognizable. Um, and perhaps the real tragedy is is when Christians just don't seem to care, right? 
you, the, the mind of Christ, I believe, is that in every city, there would be one Eucharist, one loaf of bread, one cup, you know, one bishop, one presbytery, one people. And if we don't have that in our town, then the will of God isn't actualized. So what are we doing to, to make the, the will of the Lord um, a reality in, in our city? That's, I think that's what we should think about is how do we engage uh, other Christians where we are placed by God to, to, to engage other people with uh, different uh, ideas. I really appreciate that. And something I really love that you said there is that could we at least all agree to cultivate a sense of mourning for what we've lost? I think that that's a very a great baseline. I think we can do more and we can pursue unity. Mm -hmm. But I think at the very least, you're right. We all should recognize the church was once one. And now in uh, at least its external form, like we're not seeing that. We're not living in to that reality and to that call of the church. And so we we should be disturbed by this and we, we should lament this. And um, hopefully that spurs on to even greater thought of mm -hmm. what can we do. Now, yeah. you also began talking a bit there about there being one Eucharist. And in your book, you take this stance of the importance of ecclesiology in these conversations that oftentimes we overlook the importance of ecclesiology and ecumenical dialogue and talking about relations between churches, especially, and mm -hmm. I could see this as somewhat of an outsider to this conversation, that often as a protestant looking you know from the outside it looks like well it's pretty similar ecclesiologies one just doesn't have a pope uh, but but you get into it a little deeper there and you talk about this idea of eucharistic ecclesiology so could you tell me what is eucharistic ecclesiology and why does it matter well, hey, everyone, we will get right back to the interview. But first, I wanted to thank another sponsor today, and that is Faithful Counseling. I am so excited to be partnering with Faithful Counseling. They are an organization that exists to help you get the help that you need. You know, one of the first YouTube videos I ever made was titled, You Can Have Jesus and a Therapist Too. Today, so many people are struggling with their mental health, and the last thing we need to do is create a stigma around it that keeps people from getting the help they need. And I want to do my part to help you all reach out and find the resources that can be helpful for you. And I think Faithful Counseling could be one of those things. Faithful Counseling is a group of Christian counselors. And no matter where you are in the Christian tradition, they have counselors from across uh, the spectrum of denominations. And if that's important to you, they can try to link you up with someone uh, that matches your background. But their counselors, they are all licensed counselors with over 3,000 hours of experience. You can connect with them from any country in the world, and you can connect with them in four different ways. You can do video sessions, phone calls, live chat, and messaging. These are people that are here to help you, and I really think that you could benefit from them. If you are struggling, you do not need to be doing this alone, and I really encourage you to check them out. You can do so by going to faithfulcounseling.com slash gospel simplicity. If you do that, if you go to faithfulcounseling.com slash gospel simplicity, not only will you get 10% off your first month, but you can be matched with a counselor in less than 24 hours, which is absolutely incredible. You'll be getting counseling from a Christian perspective, and you'll be on the path to doing the work and getting the help that you need. So I'd really encourage you to check them out, faithfulcounseling.com slash gospel simplicity. Also, I want to let you know that this is not a crisis line. If you are currently experiencing suicidal thoughts or ideation, please reach out to a crisis line. You can find one at www.crisistextline.org. 
org. You do not want to go through this alone and please reach out if you are experiencing those things. Well, once again, I hope that if this is something that would be helpful for you, that you will check that out. You can find the link in my description. I want to do my part, as I said, to end the stigma. I hope that you will as well. Let's help people get the help they need to be on the path towards healing and hope. So go to faithfulcounseling.com slash gospel simplicity. Yeah, I think it's really critical because if you think about the creed, we talk about the Catholic Church. That's the proper adjective for churches is Catholic, right? We can discuss what that means, where it comes from in the Bible, actually. And then the proper adjective for faith is orthodox. Right? So it's the orthodox faith of the Catholic Church. So that's really critical to understand why these terms are, are meaningful. When we say church, I think we should go to the scriptures. It sounds really obvious to, to say, what is the church? Is there one church? Uh, why is there churches plural? Right. How does that work? But fundamentally, when, when our Lord says, this is my body, he means the Eucharist and he means the church. It's the same thing. So the, the, the Eucharist being the gathering of the people of God in a particular place with the, the presbyters, of which the first is the bishop, the deacons, the people, the one loaf, the one cup. When this takes place, uh, then you have the church. In fact, you have the whole church. So I would say that if there is a gathering of Christians anywhere in this country or elsewhere, which is very common today, and there is no Eucharist that takes place, then you have a Christian gathering of some kind, but you can't have the church. The church isn't actualized. It's not made manifest because the Eucharist does that. And that's why every single liturgy that we have, every gathering of Christians on the Lord's Day, sometimes on, on Saturday, has the Eucharist because that's how the church comes into, into existence or is, is revealed, right? There's this, this opening of the transcendent realm and this one church becomes completely manifested uh, in, in the people you know, being gathered and communing in, uh, in the Holy Gift. So really... Church, Eucharist is the same biblical concept as the body of Christ. Now, in the scriptures, it's very clear that there is the church in Jerusalem, right? the church in Antioch, the church in Corinth, church in Rome, and that in every place, it's called literally the Holy Ecclesia, the whole church. So what we have, and that's, I think, that was my discovery because of my background with science, is that so in every city, you have the whole church, not a part of the church. Right. And I think we couldn't really make sense of it uh, until recently when we discovered you know, holograms right? and, and, and those technologies where we understand how that works. And with a hologram, if you encode holographically on a film and you project light on that film, you have the whole image of whatever you encoded, you know, say Princess Leia. And then you cut the film in half, and then you shine that laser on the half of the film, you still have the entire image of Princess Leia. And you keep on cutting that film, and every single bit of the film that's holographic contains the whole. Now, of course, as you cut the film, you have a less resolution of the image. And, and the bigger the film, 
the more crisp, accurate the, the resolution. And indeed, the word Catholic means, I think, not universal, and we can discuss that. It does not mean that. It means according to wholeness, it means having the property of being whole in every part. And that's why you have this idea that in a town, in the scriptures, you have the church in a town. But in a region like Achaia, Greece, or Asia Minor, you have churches. There's a shift from the singular to the plural, right? So, strictly speaking, there is no Russian Orthodox Church, right? It, it's not a biblical concept. And in fact, the legal name is the Moscow Patriarchate. That's accurate. Right. Those are local churches in Moscow, St. Petersburg, all the, all the cities with a bishop, and they form together a patriarchate. And that would be a, a, a proper, but it's a political or an economic arrangement. It's functional. But fundamentally in the early church, every local church with a bishop in the city is the whole church. It's the Catholic church. Right. And the head of the Catholic church is Peter, the bishop. And that I think is a really misunderstood idea is that um, if you have a model, which is a Catholic model today, in which the, the church is the international or universal body, right? It's, it's a worldwide body. Then every diocese is a portion of that church. There's parts to it. And every bishop rules a portion of the church. But ultimately, the church is this international body and the the, the true head, the true bishop of bishops is the Pope, who is the, the only Petrine successor. So in the Catholic model, the bishops are the apostle successors, and the Pope is Peter's successor. And that's it, that's that kind of Roman imperial universal model. In the pre-Nicene, Eusebius, and I would argue uh, Orthodox model, the, the church is the local church, the whole church. Church of Corinth, for example. Um, and the head of the church is he who holds the throne of Peter, and that's actually the first among the presbyters, and that's the bishop. So the presbyters, as I am one, we are the apostle successors. And the bishop holds the place of Peter among us as the first. And that is what you find in, in Ignatius, uh, in Cyprian in particular. When Cyprian writes of Carthage, famously, the unity of the Catholic Church, he means the local church. When he talks about Peter's throne, he, he means the bishop's throne, right? So in this system, though, you could argue that, well, there is one bishop who is a bit more Petrine than others, and that's the Bishop of Rome. Therefore, if we're going to have a primate, right, a first among the bishops, it would be natural since the first in the local church is, is the Petrine successor, the bishop, then maybe it would be the best imagery that the first among the bishops would be also the Petrine office holder. And so there was a natural convergence in the early church of Rome being the most powerful church, most generous by far, uh, the center of the known world, but also the place where Peter himself uh, had had reposed him. So there was never a real uh, question that um, that uh, it was strange for Rome to have some kind of primacy, right? And in the book, I argue that you know the primacy of a father in his family, for example, is not the same 
as the primacy of, of a chief in his village, for example, or the mayor in his town. Those are different primacies, right? And so I argue that in the in the church, the local church, the Catholic church, the bishop has a particular kind of divine Petrine primacy. But among the churches in a patriarchate or a universal worldwide body, communion, then the role of the primate, and there should be one, is different. Just like you know, the mayor has a different role or the chief, village chief, than the father of his family. So there's different levels of primacy. And that's where there is sometimes uh, a misunderstanding as to how it should come about, how strong it should be, things like that. Well, that's really interesting. And I think we might get into a little bit more of those questions of what would that look like a little later on. Um, but first, I want to delve a bit more into this Eucharistic ecclesiology idea. It's a concept I think I first came across in Mayendorf's work. And the first time I, I read about it, I... I th was struggling to comprehend it as he uh, juxtaposed it with a parts-whole relationship. I think I'm getting it more as you explain it, but for those that might be working through this, and maybe they're hearing it for the first time, when they hear you talk about, so there is the church in Corinth, and it is uh, the whole church, but then in a region, there are churches, and each of those with a bishop and a Eucharist, uh, presbyters, deacons, has the whole church present there. It, I, th I think I'm all right so far. So, how do, does this model work with the idea of, so in the creed, we have uh, three marks of the church. It is holy, Catholic, and apostolic, or yeah, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. Um, but we have this idea of that uh, the church is one, generally speaking. People say like there's, there's one church. What, when we talk about that, that's specifically to local churches, or what does it mean for the church to be um united in that sense as mm -hmm. one church does that make sense it does so the the one church the catholic church is either all those in christ who have ever lived in space and time that's the whole body of christ so people alive today throughout the world don't add up to this reality right we're just a a portion in time of the entire body of Christ, which will be revealed at the second coming. So there is one church because there's one body of Christ. So the one church is either this complete body of Christ, all believers in Christ through space and time, or it is that being manifested in a particular place. And that's the way it was understood. So the, the unity of the church in the early days of Christianity was the concern which you find in, in Ignatius, for example, that in, in any given town, there is a single bishop and therefore a single Eucharist. And that no Eucharist should be deemed assured, some people say valid, unless it is done by the bishop in apostolic succession or by a presbyter that he has delegated. And you see this, this sense in, uh, in the, the Nicene council and the canons i think canon i think it's canon six or eight or, or ten one of those says that there should be only one bishop in the catholic church and so even when they would reconcile some of these charismatic groups but if they were deemed to be acceptable and they had a bishop there so there were two bishops in a in a single town like antioch or whatever they would find a solution to have a single bishop at some point in that church again, because one bishop means one church 
now of course what about two towns right in greece uh, what about um you know a town in rome and then across the the sea might be you know a greek town uh they have to be in communion they have to manifest the same reality right but it, historically it wasn't always the case right you had cases where you know the the asian minor churches were out of communion with others over the date of, of pascha easter you had um, schisms within the common union they called it over rebaptism so you had you know familian in caesarea who was out of communion with uh, stephen of rome and and maybe a, a carthage so we've always had these occasional breaks of communion uh, in the common union not in the church locally but between churches but sometimes when you have a a a breach between local churches say rome and antioch at, at some point well rome could decide to say well we want to send our candidate to antioch right we we, we know who we want to be as bishop and you had that at one point where uh, there were two 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 bishops in antioch there was uh paulinus who was the the bishop that was supported by the west by rome and the west uh, there was uh, Miletius, who was supported by St. Basil and others, and you had two bishops in Antioch. And to this day, when we read the Logia of St. Basil every Sunday right now in Lent, we cause schisms in the church to seize. We pray in that, in that liturgy. And I think it's a reference to St. Basil dealing with uh, the great church of Antioch having two bishops. And it was such a disaster that they agreed those two bishops to, that whoever would die first would then, you know, the, there would be a takeover of the next one. So finally, there would be again one bishop in the Catholic Church, which is how the church is in fact one. And so returning to this local reality, I think is important because, uh, because say that you live in Siberia, the natural local. Catholic Apostolic Church will be part of the Orthodox communion. That's where it's always been, right? So if you introduce another Eucharist there, uh, another bishop, then you create a schism in that local historically established Catholic Church. And historically, Orthodox bishops never did that. Like they would never say, hey, we have a schism with Rome. We'll send our own bishop there and we'll restore, you know, the Pentarchy. Or they didn't like to uh, to make bishops in France, a Catholic country, and give that bishop the name of a city in France because there's Catholic bishops there. So the Orthodox always understood that you don't solve the problem by sending another bishop in a town with the same title as, say, a Catholic bishop. So this was only done by, by Orthodox Christians when we arrived in lands that were unclaimed. Right? In the USA, there was kind of, you know, there was no historical... Uh, presence there so you could kind of claim philadelphia or or san francisco but um but ideally we we must have to obey christ one bishop in the local catholic church and one eucharist and uh, we do in many places uh in the orthodox world uh, in russia and romania and greece in in other places we don't like in san francisco there's three if not four orthodox bishops and that violates the canons so if I'm hearing you right, and I, I want to make sure because this is an unfamiliar concept to me, and so I, I'm trying to grasp it here. You talked about, you know, when moving into new lands where there wasn't a bishop, therefore there was, or they were unclaimed, um, so there wasn't a Eucharist there, and Orthodox could stake a claim there. Uh, they could they could put a bishop there. But what about in lands today that 
are not historically Orthodox, that maybe don't have an Orthodox presence there, but they do have, say, a Catholic presence there, and there is a bishop. Is what you're saying that the Orthodox would not put a bishop there, um, or am I misunderstanding that? Well, it's been the the practice, in particular, of the uh, Russian Orthodox Church, or Moscow Patriarchate, as I should call it, not to establish bishops with titles of French cities or Portuguese cities or Italian cities in canonical territories that are historically of the of the Roman you know, sphere of influence. And in return, they were asking for many years that the, the, the Catholic Church does not establish bishops in in Russia. It was kind of a mutual, you know, agreement, which Pope John Paul actually broke because he uh, he ended up uh, establishing four local bishops in in Russia. But in general, the the Orthodox maintained this this practice to this very day. In other words, um, um, e even in the uh, you know the patriarchate, they don't give titles of say Paris or Lyon or Marseille to bishops that are serving the Orthodox people there out of ongoing respect for this model where you don't solve the problem by putting another bishop where there is one already. I see. So there, it's not that you wouldn't expand the church there, that there wouldn't right. be an Orthodox sure. church, but he would not be yeah, that's right. a bishop of Paris. If Okay. That's right. Makes sense. Okay. That, that makes yeah. more sense. I was intrigued by that and because yeah. it seemed that that would be awfully difficult to expand the yeah. Orthodox Church. Sure, um, sure. If that were the case. And, that... and, and there's pros and cons. I mean, my view would be it'd be better to give the name of a town that has no Catholic bishop, but that is nearby, as opposed to a town in Russia somewhere, when in fact the bishop is serving in France, right? So that'd be my preference to give a, a, a neutral city, you know, uh, maybe with a monastery is established, but but it shows that deep down in in the the consciousness of the Orthodox, you know, bishops and and churches, that we understand this local reality. Now, sometimes we we have uh, gone to the national model, where in fact the church is this is national entity, which I think is dangerous. It's it's a real problem. It's it's you know the making the functional arrangements of these churches uh, because. A church can't function by by itself. So you can't have a local church, say in Antioch, that functions without being in communion with the nearby church. Because when the bishop dies, you need three bishops to consecrate another bishop. So if you don't, if you're just by yourself, you're going to die like a cell in the human body. And in that sense, there is a necessity uh, that the the bond of love of of truth will make local churches be in communion and work together to form a, a a structure of communion, right? And you can call this an archdiocese, a metropolia, a patriarchate. And there's an ancient canon that says that in a region, the bishops should know who is their head and that the bishop should not do anything without the, the consent of the head bishop and that he should do nothing with their consent. So if you look, for example, at the, the current statutes of the um, Moscow Patriarchate, you can read the statutes, right? In effect, the, the bishops in that territory agree in the statutes to delegate specific powers to the patriarch. But it's very specific. There's a list of what he can and cannot do. And it's an echo of this idea that you need to have this, this 
this this tissue of cells in communion that there has to be a, a recognized head to the region and that there has to be this mutual uh, agreement to to work together and in that sense you could imagine then an international head since you have a you know a, a region like uh, like russia or large large territories the question is you know are the powers of the international head absolute that's the roman catholic model he's the only peter and um, and his authority is really absolute uh, over all bishops or should the bishops delegate to that prime bishop specific uh, powers now historically um if you look at uh, at the records the when there was this this crisis over arianism and many bishops were expelled and restored and who is the real bishop and who can we who can intervene who can we appeal to the bishops agreed that the the bishop of rome julius at the time would be uh kind of the the court of last resort that he would be able to send back a case of appeal to a tribunal and that was the the council of sardica which was always uh honored even uh photios said uh, the, the patriarch photios saint photios said that um that was fine with him that rome could have that international right of appeal the, it has to be somewhere uh ultimately but the bishops um in the in the decree said let us honor the memory of the apostle peter by granting to pope julius of rome this authority and then the the bishop say no we we concur we approve so it was kind of this 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 meeting of two systems right on the one hand the claim of rome that they have a particular petrine uh authority legacy uh, place right place among bishops and yet for the eastern bishops uh, that yes but it has to be you know it's not a bishop of bishops it's a it's it's among the bishops like a, a mayor a chief right a, a a board member to to whom powers are delegated and to an extent you know within current day orthodoxy that is the challenge is that historically we did delegate powers to the nicol patriarchate at least we recognize them de facto and and today we there's kind of a breakdown of what those powers are and and when should they be restated should it be done you know at every meeting should it be done should we accept them as they were established 400 years ago um and that's the problem that we have is 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 that the primacy isn't really functional at this international level yeah it does seem just intuitively that without some type of primacy there a you're going to have situations of disagreement that aren't easily reconcilable. Oftentimes, mm -hmm. you, you need someone to adjudicate those things without necessarily granting um, you know, further claims of Rome, of uh, infallibility, etc. I, I think you could perhaps have some type of adjudication. And I imagine uh, you, you hinted at this in passing, and I, I thought about picking up on it, but um, now that you've kind of come back to this idea, I'll I'll circle back when you mentioned the schism. I don't know. I think schism is a fair word mm -hmm, between mm -hmm. uh, Moscow and Constantinople. And you said because of a um, dissatisfactory or um, I forget the exact term you used ecclesiology, but uh, an ecclesiology that's lacking something. Is this mm -hmm. what you were referring to that there's been a breakdown of the role of the patriarchate or of some type of primacy? Yeah, it's actually interesting because it really circles back to ecclesiology. Uh, the 
The issue, to an extent, is the city of Kiev, uh, which is, for me, very meaningful in many ways. And in Kiev, there has to be a single bishop, right? That's the law of God, right? It's the mind of Christ. So there was, and there is, you could say, a bishop in Kiev, right? Uh, bishop Onufri, who is attached, part of the Moscow Patriarchate, right? And there was a decision by Constantinople to basically create a second bishop in Kiev. So to create a schism in the Catholic Church, to use the ancient language. As a result of, of creating the schism, right, uh, then there is a schism, <laughs> not just in Kiev, which there is, but also between the, the superstructures that, that are you know, involved in, in the Ukraine. Uh, it would have been possible for Constantinople to do something else, uh, to, to, to recognize um, bishops in other parts of the country, uh, to give to their primate a different place, right? Because they, they they were they had to recognize that there was already a bishop. They recognized him for many many years. Um, so you can see how if ecclesiology is misunderstood, if we if we create a schism in a local church, it has consequences that are international and that are quite uh, quite severe. Um, after the schism between Rome and so New Rome being. Constantinople and Old Rome in 1054, you really only had two churches were in schism, right? It wasn't like there was no Roman Catholic Church, there was no Orthodox Church. There was two churches, Rome, Constantinople, that were in schism. And that's it. And in fact, you know, uh, we would say that this schism made a defect for us in the Roman Church. There were some defects there of practice, but it was still a church. There were still baptisms there. There were basically Latins and Greeks, now divided with language, culture, and, and, and things that are today silly, like having beards, no beards, and things like that. Uh, but um, for 400 years, it was really Christians who were Latins and Greeks trying to reconcile. It's only when Florence fails that you can say you really have two blocks that, ev that emerge, right? You have the the Roman Catholic Church slash churches, and then you have the Eastern Orthodox bloc, and then you really have two two bodies, right? Uh, some would say two lungs. That was the imagery of uh, Pope John Paul II. And so, as an Orthodox, I would say that historically there were defects that were introduced in the Western local churches. For example, with baptism, right? To sprinkle as opposed to immerse, to reverse the order of the sacrament. So to say, okay, we're going to now baptize by sprinkling, and then we're going to uh, do First Holy Communion at Age of Reason, which was a departure from apostolic practice. And then we're going to wait for the bishop to arrive, and then we're going to wait you know, for a visit of the bishop to do chrismation confirmation. Now you have inverted the sacraments. You've spread them out over 15 years. I would say... You can rationalize it, as the West likes to do, but I think it's a defect. It's a departure from apostolic practice. Now, do those defects nullify right, the, the, the mysteries? Is Christ unable to work when there are defects? I, I hope that he is, because we're all defective. We all have some level of, of defect. There is, though, a, a point, I would say, where it's so defective that the, the mysteries become... 
very questionable, right? The, the, the term in Greek, bebeia, doesn't mean invalid or valid. It means really assured, where it's where basically you kind of you lose all assurance that you have a a a, a real presence of the body of Christ. Uh, an example would be, of course, very obvious is that in a an Anglican church where the bishop or presbyter is a female, you have it's the, the defect is total. Who would say we are sure that it cannot happen? Right, because it's just too defective, and we would say that uh, sometimes in you know, in the the West, I would say at least since Vatican II, sometimes it's so defective, right? It's, it's just so bad liturgically you know, that you you want to say, "Gosh, I'm not sure how the Lord is able to work through this," because it's just so obviously you know, uh, a departure from apostolic practice. Now, I would say that we have sometimes defective liturgies. I've seen them. I mean, in terms of the way it's done and the the the, the canonical setup that we have. Um, I think there's a question, though, for for everyone as to where you live, as to you go to a church, who is the bishop there, and what defects do you do you see and can you tolerate? Right. And um, so I think um, there's always hope that these defects can be can be corrected. Um, and for example, in, in modern day Catholic practice, the presbyters can again chrismate. That was reintroduced uh, pretty recently. And it goes back again to this apostolic concept where for Rome and the West, the bishop was the, the apostle successors, not the presbyter. So the presbyter really couldn't do, say, chrismation confirmation. In the Eastern model, where the presbyter is an, is an apostle to the apostles, and just the bishop is the petrine first, then of course the presbyter can do all those things. So you could see how you know there's ancient roots to to these these issues. Um, uh, but these these debates have gone on for a long time. Uh, but with more scholarship, I think, um, uh, and more of a um, uh, a discussion, we're able to. I think to go back to to these ancient models, and hopefully, uh, we'll be able to agree more on how things should be done. Yeah, I'm hopeful for that as well. I want to ask a question about that, and then I, I want to get into a little bit of a talk about uh, reunion. Uh, so that that's on my mind for next. But you you mentioned that there might be a lack of assurance of the uh, well, you juxtapose assurance and validity. So I don't want to say assurance of the validity, but the assurance of the reality of uh, the sacraments or the efficacy of the sacraments in different communions and different churches. Now, when you're evaluating them in this way, are you using that same or Eucharistic ecclesiology to say in that specific church, as in the, you know, I can't say, I don't have assurance about the Eucharist in Chicago because of the bishop in Chicago in the Catholic Church. Um, but that isn't to say anything about a church in San Francisco who has a different bishop, even though they're both under the Catholic structure, or would you lump them together as uh, parts of that whole? Does that make sense? Right. I think both. Um, some, some issues could be systemic because they're Catholic-wide, 
um, but uh, others are definitely very much local, right? So you can you have local practices that, that make that make more sense, and you have abuse in particular places. I'll give you an extreme example. Take um, uh, Christianity in Accra, Ghana, right, West Africa. So Anglican in uh, 1955. Right? So you go there. I would say that th there's questions because it's the Anglican communion, you know, but it's 1955. They're pretty much teaching the right stuff still. And you would, you could say for me, right. Uh, if I have to live in, in Accra, Ghana, I could say, well, I think that it's, it's, it's what, what I've, what I have, right. The, the, uh, maybe I'll go there, right. But there's enough of a sense of validity of assurance that I could, I could go. Uh, and that may not be true, you know, 20, 30, 50 years later when um, perhaps the Orthodox uh, presence uh, arrives, but also there's been such decay in, in the Anglican communion that uh, it, things become very questionable. So um, it's local and it's also at a particular point, uh, point in time. And I would say it's not that we're judging as in condemning, you're judging for yourself as to where you want to be in terms of your walk with Christ and and what could what program you support right what where you want to put your energy in supporting the the will of God in a particular place interesting yeah i hear echoes though i i can see where there are differences uh but at least with the tradition i'm most familiar with you have calvin famously his institute saying you know where is the church? The church is where the word of God is preached and the sacraments are rightly administered. Not that you would follow Calvin all the way down that, but the inter the the overlap between um, these things of how do you have assurance of where the church is and you're, you're looking at these things um, stood out. To and me. It, it, yeah, in, in my book, I list uh, the I think like the five main criteria. Right? Is first of all is is the bishop there being an historical continuity from the apostles. So that's really critical. So take a town is where is that continuity with the apostles of the community and the bishop? Uh, secondly would be, uh, though not necessarily always uh, critical, is is how orthodox or maybe somewhat radical the, the, it, it might be because the church can continue to be when there's heresy. So for example, uh, Constantinople as a town had heresies sometimes, uh, iconoclasm comes to mind, the, the church was still there. People were still being baptized, communing, even though there was eradical teaching for a while. So in that sense, I would say that Catholicity is more important than orthodoxy in the order of, uh, of importance for to determine what's going on in a particular place. Number three, I would say, what about the, the holiness of the, of the bishop? You know, sometimes you have, um, you know, if you have two issues with one and two, and then you have a, also, a bishop was very problematic in his personal morality. Then you really have another problem to deal with. So, uh, like in, if you take Antioch, was a good example, right? Miletius was the the ancient successor. He was orthodox and he was holy, right? And and yet he was willing uh, eventually to um, to to when he would die to to leave room to to someone else who was, I think. Paulus was still a fine person. He was obviously orthodox, but he he was, you know, he wasn't the the, the the local successor. He was more someone pushed from the outside. So I think it's good to really look at where we live and how the church operates where we live. Yeah, I think especially today with the 
at least in the West, or maybe I'm importing my own experience. I live in downtown Chicago. There is a multiplicity of um, churches here. Mm-hmm. Um, and even if you are Orthodox, I could walk down the very street this is on and pass two Orthodox churches within a mile. There's an OCA church mm-hmm. and a Greek Orthodox church. And I imagine these things come to mind for people as they're, they're yeah. making those decisions. I, I do want to turn the corner a bit uh, here as we begin to close, but I want to talk about reunion. So we're we're going to take for granted, or people can research elsewhere, uh, kind of the history of the schism. That's a, a big conversation and um, multifaceted, and you touched on it a bit, um, but I, I don't think we're going to go there. But I do want to talk about, you know, today, for whatever reason, for whoever's to blame, for however it happened, we find ourselves in a divided church. There um, is not that, that oneness that, that we're seeking, as you mentioned at the beginning. So you say that you know you take a hopeful stance on this, and, and I really appreciate that. You also mention in your book, you quote uh, Pope Benedict XVI on the idea that uh, maximum demand solutions, which I don't know if that was a, a phrase he coined, but it was in that quote, um, they're not going to work. And what he means by that from my reading is that, you know, just saying that Catholics have to fully become Orthodox and Orthodox don't have to change anything for reunion. That, that's not going to happen. And vice versa is it's not going to happen. Um, so in light of that, obviously this is a huge question, but what would reunion even look like in a way that's theologically acceptable to an Orthodox Christian or to you specifically? Right. Well, the, the glue of the Orthodox communion historically has never been an office, right? It's always been the bond of the Holy Spirit, uh, which gives a, a shared spiritual experience. So you, you can be in Greece and Siberia in Uganda Orthodox, and you have the same spiritual experience and it, it forces the bond from the spirit, right? So uh, that's why even the, uh, the schism that we have currently, you know, between Moscow and Constantinople, ultimately I think will be healed when these people die, and when the people say, but we have the same spiritual experience, at least we should. If not, we have a real problem. But historically, it's always worked. Now, in the in the, the Catholic world, the glue tends to be the papal office. So you can have, you know, the Latin mass, uh, Catholic group, and you have like the really liberal, you know, dancing nuns, to use that idiom. If they're under the Pope, they're Catholic. Well, the path to to really converge is when we, Orthodox and Catholic Christians, have the same spiritual experience again. And Vatican II didn't quite help because even though you can have a very uh, reverent, well-served Novus Ordo Mass in which an Orthodox can go and say, hmm, that that felt really pretty close. Uh, And um, Catholics can go to a a um, say an OCA liturgy. It's in English, and it's like, yeah, this this really feels like it's it's Catholic, which it is historically. When you have that same experience, that then people will be able to 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 sense unity and, uh, and a possible reunion. So I would say that in the Catholic world, there has to be that liturgical renewal, and and really, frankly, the Catholics can almost use the pretext. Of trying to work with Orthodox Christianity you know, to say, you know, to be closer to them, we need to do some, we need to do better with our liturgics because it's, it's offensive. It's just, you know, um, 
so that is going to be the, for me the critical issue not the, the dialogue between theologians nobody cares or even you know patriarchal meetings it's when people in the same town realize my goodness in this world we kind of believe the same thing basically you know, we feel the same about our spiritual experience you know we and then that's going to lead to to something uh, that's real as opposed to just statements and people really in real life really diverge and so the crisis that i see in the in the catholic world on liturgics basically and uh, and a big push towards a, a renewal of some kind and our own crisis in terms of ecclesiology where we could say we, we kind of need old rome to help us out in this case so we could kind of use our own schism to say well we, sh we should still kind of talk to rome um uh, you know uh, it might be that we we were willing to look at our issues and um and try to converge and it may take you know a long time but um i think it would be a shame to not care basically i think the lord does care and i mentioned in my in my book this quote from john chrysostom that those who mangled the lord's body the church will suffer no less punishment than those who mangled his body on the cross and we i think we've got to take this this seriously and and in every single council uh, of the early centuries was a great concern for the unity of the church and we should we should keep that concern and do something where we live what a powerful quote from Chrysostom, and I, I love that vision, and I, I pray that it it comes to pass. I, I'd i be remiss if I didn't ask this question before we begin to wrap up. Uh, I have one other as well um, that you hit on a little bit, but you talked about we might need old Roman, we might need to see some of the deficiencies in our own ecclesiology, and I think, like you mentioned, the, the schism going on kind of might help um, in a way, present that felt need for some amount of uh, adjudication or primacy in the Orthodox Church, of course, speaking as an outsider. Um, what do you think that would look like? I know that's a big question, but what would the role of the papacy look like in a united church, again, in a way that would be acceptable to the Orthodox? Yeah, I think that the, the real good model is is Sardica, the Council of Sardica. I think it was 352. Um, because the bishops gave that authority, that privilege, not to quote the papacy or the papal office, but to a particular pope. It was given to Pope Julius by name, and then it simply stuck. I think that if there was a, a pope of Rome who had the right, the character, the will, the vision, the knowledge, the love, the courage, then that one person could be. Say okay, we will ask you know Pope so and so to help us with this, and we'd be very personal. And then if it's if it works out, it can become something more more permanent. It's how it worked for Sardica, and um, I don't think the current uh, pontiff is the uh, is the chosen one, obviously. Uh, but you know, God uh, gives us uh, times of uh, trial and times of refreshment, and uh, so we we can be hopeful that uh, um, if we do our part, He will do His part. Very well said. Something I appreciated about your, if I may characterize this as your ecumenical outlook or ecumenical approach uh, to these things, was the fact that it has a bit of a grassroots approach to it. I think um, if we look at the development of ecumenism, especially coming out of the Second Vatican Council, we see very much a, a top-down approach, and I think that probably models Rome's ecclesiology of, hey, how do we get the top people of different groups to make shared uh, statements? Mm -hmm. And then 
union should happen after that. And I think an interesting uh, test case with that might be like the joint do- or declaration on the doctrine of justification. There's this idea like we're going to make this great document. Not that they thought it would be the silver bullet, but 20 years later they agreed on it, but mm. nothing's really changed. I mean, it was significant to the theologians that worked on it and it's significant to the mm. history of theology, but on the ground, not, not much has changed. And so I, I think there's beginning to be a trend of people seeing that the future of ecumenism will be a bit more grassroots and you're going to have to get the people involved it's not just as you said theologians talking to each other um, or even just you know to patriarchates even though that might be a necessary component what i want to ask as our closing question is for those that have listened to this and said this is a compelling vision i want to see the church to be one i want to see the east and the west come together to use john paul ii to see the church breathe with both lungs again what can they do Well, I was going to say, read my book. It sounds silly, but um, um, I think we have to take the time and to read many books about it, to read the scriptures, uh, to to meet people, uh, to be willing to listen, to be challenged. Uh, When I began work on my book, uh, I thought like everybody else, Peter is first among equals and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I realized it's just not true. That Peter being first, first means chief, right? The Lord is the first. Adam was first, right? So Peter is the chief, he's the rock. And that was understood to mean the bishop, right? Not Rome, in fact, even though you could argue that in a derivative way, it becomes an argument for Rome. But I think to be to read the to read Eusebius, right? Uh, I love Eusebius. Uh, because you can see the the early churches at work, what it looked like. Can we reclaim that vision of unity with local churches that communicate and respect each other? And um, and to believe that the vision of Christ for us in our town, that there is one Sunday morning soon, you know, one Eucharist, one loaf, one cup, one people, um, and that we have to build a large cathedral because there's going to be 10,000 people showing up on Sunday and we have to hold a huge chalice as they do sometimes in the East. And we need to to find that vision just beautiful, that everyone of all ages, all races, commune in the same chalice from the same loaf that the hands of the people made uh, you know, that morning or the day before. If we don't find that vision compelling, beautiful, if we don't believe that's what the risen Lord wants, us to do, then uh, we're just theologians in the in the negative sense. We're not people who pray. Wow. Yes, and amen. May it be so. Father Lawrence, amen. thank you so much for your time today. I want to uh, allow you to have the final word. Just let people know uh, where they can find your work if they're interested, how they can keep up with you, um, and all of that. Yeah, I have a, a website uh cleanwork.org, as I recall. You can find the book on um, Amazon, of course, and maybe other better sources, uh, but I like Kindle myself, so I use that. Um, And they can reach me also on LinkedIn, which is the only network that I use because of my teaching uh, teaching role. Uh, I also teach uh, for the um, Masters in Ecumenical Studies uh, with the uh, Ukrainian Catholic University, and um, uh, at Euclid as well, so they can uh, reach me through those institutions, uh, and um, I'd I'd love to to hear uh, feedback and uh, be in touch with people. 
Wonderful. Thank you so much for that. And thanks to all of you out there who have listened to this. I do not take your time lightly, and I so appreciate you whenever it is that you come across this video. As always, until next time, be on the lookout for more videos. And most importantly, go out and love God and love others, because truly, above all else, that will change the world. Thank you.